0: I've broken all these sales records over the course of my career, like 13 of them, and I've never made a cold call. And the way that we intrude with our buyers, and I will say people get really upset when I say the cold call piece. They're like, what do you mean? Right, it's so essential. And I'm like, ah, is it? Why Why is door-to-door so creepy for us? Because we're, we're coming up, we're showing up unannounced. I think cold calls are the same way, right? And if we manage to get somebody to pick up, what are we doing? We're then pitching them to try and get them to talk to us right here and now. And I think there are so many smarter ways that we can do it, to show them we know them, to be less intrusive, and to get them to say, come on in.
1: This is Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Danny, the Rev Wasserman here coming to you for another weekly episode. We have a certifiable badass who is in the studio and not badass because yours truly is deeming her with that illustrious title. No, it's because she sits on an absolute laundry list of accolades and awards for being among the most well-respected voices on LinkedIn, among many other communities of sellers, by the way, when she's not leading from the top and the front, as the CEO of hashtag Sam Sales Consulting, you'll know Sam McKenna as an angel investor as well as just a good barrel of laughs. What are we talking about this week? Well, Sam is telling us when we attempt to personalize in our outreach, the low hanging fruit, the cringe possible option you're going to go with is. I notice this was your alma mater, and she says, "People, dur." Don't just go for the low-hanging fruit, but how can you achieve a higher order of personalization that showcases you appreciate who the person is on the receiving end? And along the way, she'll draw parallels between that attempt and hospitality. The other thing I love so much about this episode, well we all may feel a little skittish, a little nervous or anxious about putting our thoughts out on social media. And we can debate some other time what LinkedIn has and hasn't become over the years. But what I love so much about Sam's perspective is this. If you are not out there, irrespective of where you find yourself in your career as an SDR or a CEO, if you're not out on LinkedIn, your competition is. And they're filling the space. So rather than succumb to the paranoia of those haters poking holes in what you have to say screw them is what Sam says and you're going to hear why in this episode I've said enough it's time for DJ to spin that ladies and gents of the reveal listenership the reveal sphere Danny Wasserman coming to you for this week's episode really bringing a knife to a gunfight When we talk about who's in the studios with us, I don't know why she agreed to take my call, boasting nearly 77,000 followers amongst her many accolades, least of which is her followers, but having spent approximately half her career as a kick-ass record-breaking IC, then to pivot into an executive leadership role, leading. The troops of sales all over this country, only in the last four years to then transcend those degrees of impact and spread her gospel via hashtag Sam sales Consulting, which also continues to break records of growth. In the four years that she has been the founder and CEO of hashtag Sam Sales Consulting, our guest has advised the likes of Comcast and Experian and Google and Yelp, Lessonly, Outreach, LinkedIn, and many others And where it all started before she was a LinkedIn sales insider or a LinkedIn brand ambassador, well, she cut her teeth going door to door, raising funds for leukemia. If you're guessing who's going to be in the studios, it could be none other than Sam McKenna. Sam, welcome to Reveal.
0: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Danny. What an intro. I love it. And you, I mean, we're so kind to pay me 10 grand to be here. So how could I say no?
1: Well, that's the cousin seal. We actually... (laughs) We actually typically pay people twenty-five grand, so thanks for the generous discount. Oh, man, count.
0: man, oh. you got a deal. You got a deal.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Fair um,
0: warned, any everything that comes out of my mouth is usually sarcastic. So enjoy this episode, everybody.
1: I was gonna say, uh, if our CFO is listening, we did not pay her <laughs> 10 grand. Please do not take that out of my paycheck.
0: Don't start sweating, it's fine.
1: <laughs> oh god, oh god, oh god. Sam, are you hiring? Um <laughs> All right. So a few details that I want to start with. You talk about on your LinkedIn page that you started selling door to door. And I want to contrast that opportunity where someone may invite you into their own home with what feels to be a heightened era of suspicion, skepticism, doubt, reluctance to talk to strangers. So we have these contradictory experiences that you've described. And also, you are espousing this show-me-you-know-me mantra. I suspect it will probably be somewhere on your tombstone is how we remember you enshrined in the history books as a thought leader in sales. But when people don't want to necessarily allow you into their living room, in fact, I think even before you told me you have a no solicitation sign on your door, how do we fairly, responsibly, tactfully show our prospects that we know them without creepily entering or asking to enter their living room, literally or figuratively?
0: I think mean, one of the the weird things, right, that I talk about is the fact that I've broken all these sales records over the course of my career, like thirteen of them, and I've never made a cold call. And so I want to think about like in the way that we intrude with our buyers. And I will say, people get really upset when I say the cold call piece. They're like, "What do you mean? Right? It's so essential." And I'm like, ah, "Is it?" And so. Listen. Every industry is different, but you think about this: like when we show up at somebody's door, right? Why why is door to door so creepy for us? Because we're we're coming up, we're showing up unannounced. I think we'll mm-hmm. cause her the same way, right? And if we manage to get somebody to pick up. What are we doing? We're then pitching them to try and get them to talk to us right here and now. And I think there are so many smarter ways that we can do it to show them we know them, to be less intrusive, and to get them to say, come on in, right? And to me, that all starts with email. It starts with social. It starts with the way that we reach out in a high-quality way. That's what Show Me You Know Me is about do your research on the human being. And the very, very cool thing, right, is that the higher you go in title and the broader, bigger the organization you're, you're hitting, the more spam they get. Look, like ask your CMO, what does your CMO's inbox look like, right? Mm-hmm. 10, 20, 30 sales emails a day, and they all say the same stuff. You know how I know? Because I got the same stuff, even though I'm the queen of show me, you know me. Just make the effort, get the invite, earn the time, they're going to open the door and swing it right open for you. If you just do it a little differently.
1: When you think about comparing a cold call to an intrusion and how Mm -hmm. violating that feels, talk to us a little bit about the confluence of hospitality and sales, because yes, you can reach out in a more, dare I say, welcoming, warm, hospitable way. So Mm -hmm. is there a parallel here between being hospitable and being effective at sales?
0: I think you think about what you're like, the hospitable piece, right, as part of what I want my brand to be known by. And I'll just say that, like I posted on LinkedIn the other day to say, like, whatever tactics you're reading, all the sales tactics you're reading on LinkedIn, no one's wrong. It's just their way, unless they're saying, be rude to your clients, like show up on their doorstep with a contract. Maybe then we're wrong. Other than that, it's just your way. So think about this. Like, what do you want your brand to be? hospitality right being friendly being welcoming and then just being above brow to me is what I want to work for so think about how you can do those things instead of a cold call and just like shoving your way into their world and then making it self-centered about you what do we do differently how do we stand out and apart how do we show well we're not like the 99% of other reps that are reaching out it starts with that
1: And you're thinking about what the other 99 reps are doing and you avoiding that to rise above the fold, not succumb to whether it's complacency or commoditization. I'm curious, we have lots of tech that has come out in the last few years that attempt to, at scale, still provide that personalized touch. And I'm wondering in your experience, are we getting to a point where it's hard for you, either on the receiving end or even on the actual production of outreach? Are we getting to a place where it's really hard to discern What has the actual touch of a human being on the keyboard or even a handwritten note versus, oh, this was actually built by a machine, but it has duped all of us. Are we getting to that tipping point?
0: I think we're not just yet. And here's why, yeah. right? You think about the way that we include personalization at scale, which is one of my least favorite things. It is the antithesis of show me, you know me. Personalization at scale is using brackets, right? We pull in snippets from things that we see in the news. We look at their you know, company name or their first name or their title or whatever. And then we throw that in an email. So like just this morning, I got an email that says, I see you're based in the Washington DC. And I'm like, the Washington DC, sweet. And they're like, go commanders, let me know if I got that wrong. And I'm like, well, a human brain would just double check that. Also AI can double check that. So let you know if you're wrong, no thanks. But so we look at that stuff, right? It lacks authenticity, it lacks stories, it lacks heart, it lacks humor, it lacks a brain. And you can easily see what works and what doesn't. The personalization at scale is a lazy attempt at that. One of the favorite emails that I got was uh, something that told me about, um, Israeli fighter jets crashing in a training incident. This is like three years ago. And I'm like, what? And I realized, It's because we're a training company and they're CRM. And so they thought I would be interested in a news snippet about training incidents, even though it had nothing to do with sales bananas. So what a quick way to shortcut your your path to the buyer thinking that you're really lazy and you don't care about them and their time wouldn't be well spent with you. So I think, right, our buyers are not only smart enough to recognize that, but they're numb to this outreach. It's the same stuff, and they're so over it. I think the other thing, too, is we don't quite know, even if we make an effort, how to people, if you will. And that's one of the things that we teach. The amount of people that might say, Sam, I see that you grew up in Switzerland. I like the mountains. Want to buy my stuff? No. What the hell about Switzerland? Like, tell me something authentic there. So even teaching that, if you're going to talk about something about someone, what's the tie? What's your emotional connection? How do you authentically connect to that? Think of the small talk we would make, right? If I somebody showed up to me at a conference and said, you're from Switzerland, and I said, I am. And then they said, cool. I would say, cool. And then we would just awkwardly part ways. So small things really make a difference and your clients will appreciate if you'd not only take the time, but connect the dots.
1: When you talk about this sensitivity or this numbness to at best topical, superficial associations. Oh, Switzerland, do you like fondue? Like, if that's <laughs> all we're going to be able to surmise from the cues on LinkedIn, then sure, yeah, we are going to be relegated to the next Tom Decker Harry that's going to prospect after you. And I'm curious. Yeah. Is it inconceivable that we could go and achieve a higher order of personalization beyond fondue, beyond Switzerland, having mountains? Can we do that second, third, fourth layer of personalization at scale? Or are you espousing, rather than going shotgun approach, it should be rifle shot
0: forget the scale. And here's what I would tell you. So one, if you are reaching out to your your core buyers, what people often tell us is I'm supposed to reach out to hundred people a week, 500 people a week. How in the hell am I going to do that? You're supposed to reach out to those people, that volume, because the conversion rates are so low. Mm -hmm. We know if you reach out to 500 and let's say 6% open your email and let's say 1% reply and take a meeting, five meetings a week, great, also never going to happen. But instead... Work hard, smarter, and lazier. Um, and instead, instead of reaching out to that senior manager, that director, reach out to that SVP. If that person's going to be involved in your deal cycle at some point, just go to the top. Make the effort, and then go to that personalization level. Right? Think of Switzerland like a compelling event. Don't use that one compelling event. I see you're from Switzerland. Go one level deeper, or Tie a really cool story about yourself or your desire to visit or the fact that you're saving six bucks every single week to eventually go there, whatever the hell it is, right? But if you think about that, the higher we go and when we connect to those stories and we look a little deeper, when we look for an article, we pull a podcast All that stuff matters. I'm going to give you a quick example. Mm -hmm. Um, The CEO of LinkedIn is a guy named Ryan. And you can find all this information on Ryan, right? But if you go, he's got an article in the Financial Times that tells you basically exactly how to sell to him, exactly how he buys, exactly how he runs LinkedIn. You can take any of that or... Look under his picture in the Financial Times article and you're going to see something that talks about how he makes small pivots before he takes big swings at change. So if I write small pivots, quote unquote, plus something personal about him, plus hashtag Sam Sales, which I wouldn't have to do because he knows who I am. But if I do that, I'm going to get the CEO of LinkedIn probably to open up my email and to think, somebody who actually did their research and earned my time. Now, the scale piece, let's talk about that. So we once ran an experiment for a client, right, who said, I we need to reach out to 400 marketers at Tesla. That's what we need to do. So how do we do that in an effective way? The number one thing that they were going to do was congratulate Tesla, right, on their fifth straight quarterly earnings that got them on the S&P 500. Sweet you and everybody else. So don't look at that one compelling event. How many emails have we gotten that say congrats on your promotion, congrats on your series funding, congrats on whatever the hell it is that is the only thing we can seem to find because we are lazy. Instead, go one level deeper. So we looked, what are marketers doing with Tesla right now? Well, what they were doing is if you were old enough to remember, there used to be a really cool show called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? And they did a whole thing, a whole campaign around that, Pop-up shops, where in the world is Tesla, made a play on Carmen Diego and educated people on renewable energies. What did we do? We scaled that to all the marketers that knew about that campaign. 38% response rate to 400 emails sent. That's bananas. You can scale it, you just have to get smart. But when you're reaching out to that one human that you're really hopeful to get a meeting with, prioritize 20 of them every single week, send it on a Thursday or a Friday, Follow up on a Saturday or Sunday, less than 48 hours in advance, and just watch your open rate pop, your reply rate pop, and your reputation go through the roof compared to everyone else. Man, I'm angry about this.
1: (laughs) When I think about your philosophy that the sort of scattershot 400 emails, my suspicion, having never been a marketer, but certainly having been in sales leadership, is that you diversify... Across that many people, it's a numbers game. So whether it's to CYA and point to, here's my activity output by my rep. And if I just play the numbers, the probabilities, lo and behold, I'm bound to at least formulaically get to where I need to be. So it feels like an insurance policy. And mm-hmm. just playing devil's advocate a bit, if we yeah. know that playing that long game with numbers is a safer bet, I know that if I'm a leader or if I'm a seller, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to risk rather than going shotgun approach. I've only got six bullets now in my revolver. There's fewer SVPs than there are directors or even frontline managers, man. I don't want to shit the bed. I don't want to screw the pooch or like totally blow first impression. Cause I only have so many that I get with people who are at that level of an organization. Talk to us about how you talk people back off the ledge and say, no, like this is actually still the virtuous path forward. Although it might be scary.
0: So I think we think about the short game when we consider that over the long game. So here's what I would say. One, if we think about short game, right, we're just thinking, I'm going to spam everybody. I'm going to hope to get a few responses and I'm going to move on with my life. Now, if we think about the long game instead, right, every every. First, let's look at those 400 marketers. Let's say we just sent the same old crap to everybody. Congrats on the S&P. And we got four people to respond. What happens, right, to those other 396? What do we have to do with them? How do we keep badgering them? At some point, they're probably just going to mark us as spam and we're going to lose our shot. That's what I do with every terrible sales email I get. I just market spam. That's it. And then you've lost your your shot for me. And that really hurts your deliverability. Mm. I'm just not interested in it. So instead, think about this, right? If we instead email those 20 or 30 SVPs, let's say we got that open, right? They found a good brand reputation with us, right? And they said, okay, you're smart, right? Or even they respond and say, thanks, but no thanks right now that opens the door to a couple of things. It opens the door to us sending further emails, but it also opens the door for us to, for the love of God, reply graciously. They responded to your email. They did the one thing we're fighting for every single day. Even if it's a no, they got us out of that maybe zone, like that. They also introduced an opportunity opportunity to us to say, who else should we be talking to? Can I connect with you on LinkedIn? Could I follow up in 90 days? All that messaging, by the way, has to be different. So Danny, if I reach out to you, you say, it's not me, right? I'm not the right person. I say, can you point me in the right direction? You're gonna say, no, get off your ass, it's your job. But instead, if I change the semantics and the positioning, if I own up to the fact that it is my job, but I could really use your help, if I use words like grateful, I'd appreciate your support, I'm happy to keep your name private, all those things, this is the domino effect of the long game. But even if they open up our email and they don't respond, guess what happens? Because we took the time to actually do this work, they might forward our email to somebody else who might then go to our website, lets us capture their contact information, gets them to root around maybe that person that we initially emailed roots around. Maybe they keep opening up our email. 93% of buyers out there are not interested in us right now, but a good chunk of them are reading and learning and thinking about what the future brings. So those well-crafted emails lets us nurture them. And then finally, They respond when there is a need, and they probably only respond to us because we're the only ones that gave a shit enough to write something good.
1: Personalization in sales generates more revenue. Duh. Well, Sam's experience stresses the importance of this, and it's also backed, not by her opinions, by what the folks at McKinsey have to say. They ran some research and found that companies that excel at personalization generate 40% more revenue from those activities than their average counterparts. This shows that the effort and deeper customization really makes a difference. McKinsey went on to say that overall, personalization can result in a 10 to 15% increase in revenue and can grow up to another five to 25% if you focus on your recipient sector or industry. Mm. If you wanna level up, make sure that you are specifying those personalization efforts as far as you possibly can. Let's get back to Sam and hear a little bit more about what she has to say. I think I love that reframing of short and long game. And the other thing, if you believe that the less risky strategy is the 400 marketers with the same fluffy, crappy email, there is a risk as evidenced by the fact that you're spamming or putting those folks into a spam folder. Yeah. Yeah. There actually is a consequence and a casualty to that. So I appreciate you elevating the stakes that this should not be an afterthought when you're hitting 400 or 4,000 people. I want to go back to the sensation of numb. And in particular, when you think about we are numb to bland, stale, vanilla toast emails and thinking about the shelf life of whether it's a novel or original or reflect like a refreshingly creative message that you're taking. And I want to apply it to LinkedIn because Mm -hmm. podcasts are popping up every other day. They're sprouting like weeds and thinking about the sheer number of even LinkedIn influencers that are cropping up. You've been a LinkedIn influencer for years and the numbers don't lie there. And I'm wondering, as you even think about the novelty of that forum as a place for exchanging thought leadership, how do you reckon with, is this now an increasingly commoditized exchange and do you have to go somewhere else? To maintain that, we'll say leading edge, right. cutting edge, bleeding edge thought leadership that we know you to possess.
0: I think everybody can get on LinkedIn right now and believe that they're an influencer. And we see that left and right, right? Like it's just a collection of followers. And you say, I have 20,000 followers. I'm amazing. I'm an influencer. I think the same thing happens, though, with being numb to content is numb to the stuff that's on LinkedIn that maybe doesn't really add up to anything worthwhile, right? So I think this is where you see a lot of people who tag in, right, some of the top names right and i we i always end up on the same list with the same people and there's a reason for that right like there, there's smatterings in there that i get tagged in when i'm like oh, i don't really agree with this person and mm-hmm. not so excited about that but for the most part it's the same people over and over again the jen allens of the world the todd caponis of the world because we all have unbelievable experience we've done it over and over and over again and that's it I think that you see people hit the bell on profiles of people that they really value. And I, again, like post about this. This is what you want to look for before you believe somebody's content to be the gospel. Look to make sure that they have done this for a long time. Look to make sure that they've done this across multiple product suites, multiple teams or multiple companies. I can't tell you how many people are out there that are like, I'm gonna teach you how to make a million dollars just like I did. And I'm like, really? When you got to Zoom in March of 2020, my God, tell us how you did it. Right? Like, it's just unbelievable. So has that person done it over and over and over again? Have they worked for reputable brands? Did they get promoted constantly? Did they see success? Like, look for that stuff because people are numb to that. I think it's one of the things, as unhumbly as I can say, that makes us popular and gives us a lot of followers and also gets. Our newsletter gets unbelievable, over 50% of an open rate with over 10,000 subscribers every week. Because I think the content that we have in there is tangible, practical, but it's also teaching people how to sell in a manners driven way, right? Which is everything I stand for. Instead of like the garbage that you see, like double cold call somebody to make them think it's their kids' school. And then when they tell you that they can't talk, because they're in a meeting, say it can't be that important. Because you called me or you picked up, <laughs> what? Like I w- literally want to vomit. Um, so I think I think it's that, right? Okay. We I don't think there's another medium for it. I think it's just make consistently standing out through the noise with the quality of the content you have.
1: And in your world, being the founder and CEO of hashtag Sam Sales, social selling is paramount to you maintaining relevancy, being top of mind for folks that are going to subscribe to your newsletter actually pay for your services, which we'll talk about in a second. We have lots of other folks whose day jobs is not being a social seller. So what advice would you provide, whether we've got of our 33,000 unique monthly listeners, if you're a sales leader or you're an IC who's aspiring to elevate your career, can we neglect the responsibility, if not even the duty to become more social sellers? Or is that table stakes now in 2023?
0: I think, I think the word social selling is an old dated term because we've talked about it for so long and we haven't done anything with it for so long.
1: Mm-hmm. So we
0: talk about social selling, but we don't even know what it is. I think if you are in sales, if you are in sales leadership, if you are responsible for revenue, you have a responsibility to get your voice out there and to use the platform somehow. I think one, our, we have a line of business called LinkedIn Executive Branding where we build voices for some of the most prestigious executives and like Fortune 500 companies, celebs, etc. Because it's like candy from a baby, your competition isn't out there, so you might as well be, so that your your customers and your prospects and your journalists are reading your content. Someone's content has to be out there. If your if your competitors aren't, you have an incredibly awesome competitive angle. I think from a salesperson's perspective, whether you're a BDR or a leader. You think about how you can either share content, engage with people, or get really strategic using Sales Navigator to just build your prospective customer list, to engage, to share content, to find information about people. I think mean, people make mistake social selling as just posting content, right? And then like scrolling the feed. It is so much more strategic than that. And when we say prospecting is easy and people are like, are you out of your mind? I'm like, no, listen, here are a few quick hacks you can do. I'll give you two examples of social selling that are super smart. So one, one of the things that we do is called bubble hunting. So Danny, let's say you were top of my list as somebody like drool-worthy prospect I had to get in front of. I'd engage with some of your content. I might send you some emails, and then I'll connect with you on LinkedIn. Hey Danny, your name. My name might look familiar as I've sent you a few emails. I would love, I'd be appreciative of. I'd never say love. I'd be appreciative of, or I'd be grateful for, the chance to chat with you, have a conversation with you about how Sam Sales can support you. Bup, 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 bup. The thing that I do there is for my drool-worthy prospects, I change the word chat to conversation. Maybe conversation is not a word I use that often. And then on the weekends, I'm going to go into my DMs. I'm going to search for the word conversation. I'm going to pull up my 78 Dannys of the world that I've sent the word conversation to. I'm going to see who's online by looking for a green bubble next to their name. And then I'm going to nurture them. I'm going to say, here's an article. Here's something I love. Here's something I read about yours. I just wanted to say kudos on this great podcast. You'd be so amazed at the amount of responses and dialogue you would create just by working 75 minutes on the weekend, cut out early, cut out at noon on Friday, and do this for 75 minutes and you'll kill your peers. The other thing that I would say, right, is we do something where we save a list of our top prospects, Mm -hmm. we slowly filter out who posts on LinkedIn, right? Who's actually Mm -hmm. posting not like reposted auto company shared crappy content, but who's actually sharing authentic leadership. We comment on that a couple of times and we connect with them. And then we earn the right to say, can I pitch you? And they're like, fine. And we're like, okay, hey, thanks. Um, but just two super smart, strategic, low effort things that you can do to get higher impact and with higher execs.
1: Amazing. Thinking about your comments previously, achieving that higher order of personalization in prospecting, we were talking about, oh, prospecting is easy. Okay, well we need to go further mm-hmm. than just the Switzerland connection, than the mountains <laughs> connection get that. There is, in a lot of ways, underline that higher order of personalization. There's a humanizing component to how you craft a message because a human is receiving that on the other end. And I want to now parlay, we're going to humanize prospecting. Well, then how do you humanize your voice in social selling? Because there's lots of debates. Oh my God, like that was an overshare. Oh my God, I cannot believe on LinkedIn, you're talking about something incredibly personal. You know, and I think that there are other ways where people say, thank you for being so honest. Thank you for being so vulnerable. And other people who would say, this is a place of work. This is a networking service where we talk about business and there's no time or place to talk politics or religion or anything traumatic in your life. Ooh. Any guidance there as a master in social selling? Because to your point, if you're not putting content out there, your competition is. What is that sort of balancing act that you espouse?
0: I guess you just read the article about how LinkedIn is getting really weird, and then the crazy things that are people are sharing about their bathroom habits and divorces and all sorts of things there, which great things. Um, my point of view is get personal on LinkedIn, but have some sort of corporate tie to it. I okay. think other people disagree with me, and they say I want to talk about my puppies and my divorces, and then you know the pad tie I had for dinner. And I'm like, that's great. I'm going to go ahead and mute you. Maybe not the puppies. If you talk about the puppies, I'll still be here for that. Um, here's what I would say though. Right? I'm I post pictures of my dogs, but I always tie it to sales right? I make a joke about it. Like my dog ran away on the beach one day and then she like urgently ran back. And I'm like that feeling when you push back at Friday, you know, at five o'clock and then a lead comes in and like you turn around and you're like, I'm coming back for it. Things like that, where I think you can have a little fun. You can show your personality and who you authentically are. Or I might talk about one of my dogs who is opportunity ready, um, right? And she is like in the kitchen no matter what is happening. Whether she's going to get food, and the other one's like, "Hey, let me know. Bark at me if something happens," right? Like, I'll talk about that with the way that reps are lazy or proactive or whatever. Um, I think same thing. If you're traveling, if I post a picture of PTO, I'm trying to set an example for how I try to break right for and show my my reps, whoever I'm leading, right, my teams that I'm actually taking vacation seriously. So do that stuff. Share those things about your personal life, but like. What's the so what as it relates back to work? Because at the end of the day, that's what LinkedIn is. It's a professional networking place, right? Things that you might share in the corporate workplace. And I'm probably not showing my CEO my pad tie, but I'm probably showing him that I'm taking vacation and setting an example for people and they need to disconnect, right? Or making jokes about my dogs. I think you can bring that authentic voice in. I will also say, I think there's a massive hesitation for people who are young, even tenured people who say, I don't want to post, right? Like, what the hell do I have to say? What would I talk about? And frankly, who gives a shit about what I have to say? And I'm like, everyone. And here's how you know, 920 plus million members, over half of them on LinkedIn come at least once a week for a minimum of five minutes. 82 something percent of buyers recently responded to Edelman Research talking about how they use thought leadership from executives on LinkedIn in making buying decisions, that you're more trustworthy, almost 90% more trustworthy as a brand if you have content out there. So executives, sack up, right? We wanna see your voices. We wanna hear what you have to say. We wanna hear your personal stories. We don't wanna just see your work stuff. But I think the other thing is if you're BDR, if you're an intern and you're like, what do I have to say? You have something to teach someone. Right. You're not teaching a CRO how to run their business, but you're probably teaching another SDR, another marketing coordinator, another intern, how you got your job, questions you ask, ways that you seek mentorship. There is so much you can teach. So whoever you are and whatever you do have at it, just make sure. It's practical and there's a so what and something, something can, someone can execute out of your post. If you're just like, I like puppies, here's a picture. No one cares except for me. Talk about what you did. Give a script, teach someone something.
1: What do you say to those SDRs and those BDRs who are early in their career? They haven't made it to presence club yet and they're starting to courageously post and they get a ton of shade. Those haters come out of nowhere and be like, who the hell are you? Get off your soapbox. You don't have any notches on your belt to have any legitimate platform to stand on. What advice would you give those people that have to contend with a lot of headwinds from the skeptics?
0: I would say first, listen to the feedback in comparison to what you're posting, right? So let's think about how many people came out. Like when Silicon Valley bank went down, they're like, here's what we should do with our economic system. And I'm like, who the hell are you to talk about this? Like you're a marketing coordinator, right? Like you have opinions, stay in your lane on the professional network. Mm -hmm. So maybe that feedback is warranted first and foremost. Second, Again, if you're posting something that is within your world, within your sphere of expertise, maybe you did get a really tough internship. Maybe you hit a 4.0. Maybe you hit your quota in your first month. Great. How'd you do it? Right? And if you get those haters, first of all, are we on TikTok or LinkedIn? Second of all, if you get those haters, block them. Nobody wants to hear from those people. Um, And you are going to have haters. You're going to have people who disagree with you who never even comment, right? I can't imagine how many people think show me you know me as bullshit and are tired of hearing my voice. But... Hopefully those people are just giving to themselves. And I would say if you're getting haters, right, you're hopefully doing something right. They're jealous, they're upset, but just block them out, right? Let's build an audience of people who are supportive, who are kind. Even if they disagree with you, we want them in our audience. They just probably won't comment. Just get out there.
1: Well, some details that certainly did not receive any shade from me as it comes to your personalized online presence. We have to talk about two details. The first is, your affinity for Hendrick's gin, as a guy that distills my own gin, that automatically is like, okay, I'm buying what she's selling. The second <laughs> detail that all of our listeners, hopefully I'm not dating myself, want to know more about Nickelodeon. Sam, <sighs> tell us, what was it? How'd you do it? Do you still have slime on you, near you, <laughs> on an article of clothing? Were you slime? Tell us everything.
0: I was born in '80s, uh, in the 80s, which means that I was a 90s kid and I lived in Orlando. So I was born in Switzerland and then moved to D.C. and then Orlando after that. And one of the things that our parents would do is they would all like schlep us in their Jeeps or their vans, take us down to Nickelodeon Studios and have us audition for shows. So the love of my life back then, of course, um, was somebody who was trying out for guts. And I'm like, well, I'm also going to try out for guts. So I tried out for guts and they were like, you were really cute. Uh, but you're not athletic enough for, for this show. We're going to put you on legend, Legends of the Hidden Temple instead. I still thought I'd died and gone to heaven. My real dream was to get on Kids Incorporated uh, on Disney, but I never I never made it to those ranks um, or Mickey Mouse Club.
1: We all deal with setbacks.
0: Right. I mean, listen, we all. let's talk about resilience from that moment. Um, but, yeah, no, I got on Legends of the Hidden Temple. I was an orange iguana. There's an incredibly embarrassing picture um, of me that I post every single year with very high-waisted pants and a mouth guard and hell met. You're welcome, fandom. Um, but it was awesome. I unfortunately did not get to the final round, got out in the first round. But um, even uh, just a, as a closing to that, my grandfather worked for Nestle for his whole career and was chairman of the board of Nestle um, in South America for about seven years. And so as a prize, I got a box of Hershey's uh, syrup Lifetime supply, which was really 12 bottles of Hershey's syrup delivered to my door. And my family basically almost disowned me because I even touched a Hershey's bottle. So we had we had that going for me at nine years of age.
1: (laughs) Wow! Well, for listeners out there that want to get a hold of Sam McKenna's mind share, show her that you know her. Here's a juicy tidbit about her 15 minutes in Nickelodeon fame. Well, Sam, thank you from the truest, most sincerest, deepest part of the Reveal Heart for sharing all of your side door, back door hacks that have been battle tested time and time again to break through what is this numbing, agonizing, commoditized noise. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that as we wrap episodes, we always ask all of our guests the same question. And I'm very curious to know how you're going to answer this, which is if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be?
0: my My hope for what sales would be is uh, helpfulness. i I wish that we would all look at sales um through the lens of thinking about um how do we help solve a challenge for somebody that's come to us? So, I look at discovery calls this exact same way. You have 30 minutes, somebody's been generous enough to give you 30 minutes of their time. Hopefully you've qualified it in advance. You know that this is a buyer for you, so it's not a waste of time. But they get on and maybe the challenge you're looking to solve isn't quite ready for you. Or maybe they have some things that they'd like to do that your product quite doesn't do. Just thinking about what their challenge is, what they're trying to solve, why this is important, helps you direct and qualify, frankly, whether or not this is an opportunity for you or someone else. I think even just the art of referring that opportunity away instead of square peg round holing makes you so different and really thinks about playing the long game and building your trustworthiness and credibility with the buyer. But we show up to those calls trying to just talk about ourselves, Mm -hmm. ask questions that are self-serving instead of saying, how can I be of help to you today? What challenges do you have? How can we solve them? And if not us, I can probably send you to somebody else.
1: Amazing. Well, I want people to know because I'm tripping on every word that's coming yeah. out of your mouth. We know about your newsletter now. We know that we can find you on LinkedIn. If we want more Sam Sales Consulting, where do we go? How can we continue to indoctrinate ourselves into the same gospel?
0: The fastest education you can get outside of signing up for our newsletter is going to samsalesconsulting.com. And if you look at the top, there's something that says subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Our shorts have, I think, 55 or 58 sessions in them, super short and masterclasses for 145 bucks for the year. Convince your boss to let you expense us. It'll be a really killer education and sales. Um, but otherwise come say hello on LinkedIn and sign up for our stuff. We have host webinars every month too. We'd love to
1: have you. Amazing. Well, Sam, thanks so much for gracing us with your presence. It has been an utter delight. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Sam McKenna, the CEO and founder of Sam Sales Consulting. Sam, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Danny. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, well, then head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.